fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and smell of fresh manna. Today you will be listening to Phil Mills, pastor of Lansing Seventh-day Adventist Church. And now, here's Pastor Phil. Been a rich Sabbath already, hasn't it? Thank the Lord for what He is doing in our church. You know, church, I'm going to say it again. I said it at the beginning. I believe Jesus is coming soon. How about you? We live in a world that is spiraling, but we have hope in Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that is so important for us is to not just hold this hope inside, but to take to have the love of God so fill our hearts that we can't help but share that love with people around us, right? I know there are some of us that have neighbors who are hurting. Let Jesus shine through you and show them the love of Christ. Some of us have coworkers that are afraid of what's going on around us. You have a hope in Jesus Christ. Share with your coworkers the wonderful hope we have in Jesus. Some of us have family. Some of us have fellow students. Some of us are in college, academy, wherever you are. Let the hope of Christ shine through you to change the lives around you. Well, would you bow your heads with me as we Ask the Lord to be our teacher this morning. Father in heaven, how grateful we are that there is hope in you today. Whatever the chaos may be in the world around us, whatever may be the challenges that any one of us are facing, this morning here in this sanctuary, we have hope in the saving grace of Jesus Christ to come into each and every one of our lives. In a few moments, we're going to be opening Your Word. And we pray that here into this sanctuary, You will pour out Your Holy Spirit upon every one of our hearts and our minds that we may not see anything but Jesus and His love and His message for us today. That we might leave having been transformed. Hide me behind the cross. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last number of months, we've had some breaks in between. We've been studying through the Ten Commandments. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Studying through these wonderful rules of life that Jesus gave us. Now, as a reminder, some of you this might be new to you, others of you it's been a little bit. Let's just review briefly before we dive into the last of the Ten Commandments. As a quick reminder, God gave these rules of life to teach and show us as humans what it means to love God fully and to love our neighbor as our what? As ourself. The Ten Commandments are not these dictatorial articulations. They are the rules that when followed are the greatest expression, the only expression of true love towards Jesus and true love towards our fellow man. Let's think about it. In the first four commandments, God says, 
You can't love anything else more than Me. Because if you do, it will take the place of the relationship I want to build with you. Do we want a relationship with Jesus? Yes or no, church? Amen. And then we saw as we got down to the fourth commandment, that last in those series of four, God is so intensely interested in building a relationship with His people that He created a 24-hour period every seven days set aside just to build His relationship with us. Now that's a God of love. And He doesn't want anything to get in the way of that relationship that He's building. And so He says, on this day, it's such a special day, I don't want you to worry about how you're going to take care of yourself because this day is for you to connect with Me. I don't want you to try to go to work or to study or any of these things. I want you to focus on building your relationship with Me. Praise God that He cares that much about us. What do you say, church? That was the first four. Then as we went through the last six, you'll remember God started off the very first command in the understanding of how we love others is God starts off with understanding how relationships and authority work. And right there at the beginning, He says you've got to honor and respect those whom God has put over you. And we talked about in that sermon how to build that, how to respect that. What are the boundaries to put in place when there's abuse in those type of dynamics? And we saw that God has great honor and love in that. We then saw the rest of them as we saw that God doesn't want us to murder. And we realized that's not an action externally only, but that starts where? Church? In the heart. And we begin to see that the Holy Spirit is all about doing heart work. Salvation starts right here in my mind and my heart. Sometimes we get so focused on what external things people are doing and we forget that God cares primarily and first about what's happening where? Church? My heart. And that love to Him has to be at the center of everything. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Over this last week, we studied the creation story. And I wish for all of our sake, that the rest of the story said, and they lived happily ever after. You know, that's how the stories always ended, right? You go through whatever happened, and then at the very end, they lived happily what? Ever after. But in Genesis chapter 3, we find out, and of course we're living it now, the rest of the story wasn't happily ever after. Things changed. The sermon title today is, Don't Lie. And the mess that we're in today is because right at the beginning, Satan instigated the first lie. Now we know what this first lie is, and we could take time to go through that. You've heard sermons on that. We're going to briefly look at that, but I want to talk about it from the aspect of how does this impact you and I today? What are lessons we can learn in our personal walk with God when it comes to honesty and integrity? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, are you there? Notice what it says. Now the serpent was more, what's it say there, church? Cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat it, 
nor shall you what? Touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, on his surface, even the lie that he's told doesn't make a lot of sense. How much has God created for Adam and Eve? Everything. Everywhere their eyes could look were wonders and beauty and magnificence. There was just one thing in the center of the garden that God said, and it was a test of their love for Him and their loyalty. God said, don't what? Eat it. Of course, human nature is to go to the one place God says don't, and to go there and try to enjoy what God says don't enjoy. The woman says, you shouldn't eat it, you shouldn't touch it, lest you die. The serpent says, no, no, no. God knows that the moment you eat of this, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve listens to the serpent. Now, the question I want to meditate for a moment here on is, why did Eve even feel an inkling to listen to what Satan had to say? We know that Satan was lying, do we not? But what is it? A good lie taps into something that we want and it pulls us in a direction that we already want and have an inclination toward. Why do you think people buy in to some of these conspiracy theories that the rest of us may look at and go, I have no idea why anyone would believe that. Why do people buy into that? Because it taps into something that they already have a desire to believe in. Why do you think con artists are able to con people into believing some of the craziest schemes that you can imagine? Why do people get pulled into cons because they want something and the con artist draws out a desire that's already there and gets them to start believing a lie because it's something they already want. Satan comes to Eve and she sees her admiring this tree and looking at the beauty on the tree and he echoes her thoughts and he brings a lie that taps into something that Eve was already at some level probably not even conscious was already starting to wish she could have a little more than what God had given her. Church, have you ever wanted just a little more? Of course, she's talking to the father of lie. Hold your finger here and go with me to John chapter 8 and verse 44. There in the New Testament, John chapter 8 and verse 44. When you're there, if you'd let the preacher know by saying amen. No, you're just starting to turn there. John chapter 8 and verse 44. I hear a couple amens. I hear a lot of pages turning. I love to hear you turning to there. Christ is speaking and He's been talking to the scribes and Pharisees and they've just retorted to Him, we have Abraham as our father. We are children of Abraham. And Christ has responded, well, if you did the works of Abraham, then He would be your father. And then in verse 44, He brings this point home and He talks about who Satan is. You are of your father. You guys there? You are of the father, the devil, and the desires of your fathers you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the, what's the next word there, church? Truth. Because there is what? No truth where? In him. Satan can't speak truth because inside he's full of what? Lies. 
He's rejected the only source of truth, which is God. And as he's gotten farther and farther away from God, he has accepted more and more lies into his life. Now let's go back to the story of what's going on here in Genesis as we try to wrap these pieces together. Eve was pulled in to the deception of Satan because inside she started accepting a narrative that was false. God isn't going to give me what I need. I don't have everything. You know, I do have a lot, but God's holding me back. And if I just step over this line, I'll now be okay. Don't lie starts with not lying to yourself. The place where honesty has to begin is right here with me. In church, that's probably one of the hardest places to be honest. If you talk to someone who's struggling with an addiction to alcohol, one of the first steps in coming out of that addiction is being honest with themselves. I have a problem and I need help. Right? The reason why a lot of us have sins that continue on damaging the people around us and damaging ourselves is because we're not honest with us about the problem. We're not willing to acknowledge the issue. And I'll speak from personal experience. It is very painful to be brought face to face with things that you've tried to dodge and weave and try to deceive yourself about that are issues going on in your life. But the only way that we can come from where we are to where God wants us to be is it begins with an honest reflection on I have a problem and the solution is not in me. The solution is where? In Jesus. Self-deception. How dangerous that is. Sometimes those self-deception thoughts can go like this. Everything's going to be okay. Yes, I know that this pattern continues to repeat, but tomorrow I will be different. Yes, I'll just indulge one more time in whatever it is, and tomorrow I will stop. I heard someone say, this is actually in uh, Pilgrim's Progress Christiana, the audio recording, one of the uh, speakers is talking to Christiana, and, and she's like, well, I'll just do it tomorrow. And, and the guy looks back and he says, the problem with tomorrow is when it comes, it changes its name to today. And so tomorrow never comes. But you know how that works. I'll do it tomorrow. This is the last time. They're really going to change this time. And lying to ourselves is not just in the areas of sins that we're struggling with, but church, let's also talk about another area, an area that for some of us may be even more difficult to talk about, and that is the fact that there are some of us who may be in abusive relationships, and we are lying to ourselves about the fact that the relationship we're in is abusive, and we need to become honest about it, and we need to start realizing that without Jesus, that will not change and we need to put ourselves and our families in a place of protection. Can someone say amen? Honesty is so much more... And don't misunderstand this. It is very important that what I say is honest as well. But it also includes the self-talk that I have, the self-reflections that I have, the things that I have inside my life. It is so critical that we don't self-deceive ourselves, but that we allow the truth of God's Word to come in 
and speak to us, enlighten the darkness. Going back to Genesis chapter 3, here we have Eve. Satan has tapped into something at some level. Eve has a desire to be higher than she is. Patriarchs and Prophets, I reread that section this morning. She talks about how if modern wants to do what Eve did in Eden, where she desired more than God had given her, when we try to go there, we will go much farther down. Here's the thing, church. Because she deceived herself that she should have more than God had given her, it became far worse on the other side. And if we live our lives not honest with ourselves, instead of things being better, they will become worse. Self-deception continues on. Oh, I think God's right, she thinks. So she takes the fruit, she eats it. She then imagines herself imagines herself getting onto a higher plane of existence. She doesn't, but she thinks she does. The Sebas are powerful. She runs to her husband. She's like, hey, husband, you've got to have this. And so he takes it, and he knows, but he doesn't want to lose her, so he eats the fruit. And I want you to notice the step process that happens here. It starts off with self-deception, and then she goes and she pulls someone else into her own self-deceived state, and then the reality of the problem they're in begins to manifest itself. And instead of owning up and saying, we messed up, they start now trying to blame other people for the problem that they themselves are in and have created. So they lose their garments of light. And so now out of embarrassment, realizing that they're naked for the first time, they make clothing out of fig leaves. That must have been interesting. Those are some big leaves. They make clothing out of fig leaves. They're arguing. They're fighting. And then God shows up. Thank the Lord He doesn't leave us in our self-deception. Our God loves us too much to leave us where we are. And so God comes to the garden. He comes and He's looking and Adam and Eve hide from God. All of this self-dishonesty and then dishonesty to other leads someone to the place where they will start hiding from God. It's guilt. They knew they'd been wrong. So they start hiding from God. And, and as they're hiding from God, God starts calling out to them. Of course, He knows where they are, but He's the ultimate gentleman. He's not going to, to force Himself on them. So He starts calling out. He says, Adam, Eve, where are you? And finally, they come out. And, and God says, what's going on? They said, well, we heard your voice in the garden. We were afraid and we hid ourselves. And God looks back and He says, did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to? And Adam is not entirely he's he's honest in his words the implication is dishonest he says the woman that you gave me she gave me the fruit god it's not my fault it's your fault for putting that woman here is that true whose fault is it adam chose to eat are you with me but we don't like to own up to where we're wrong. But church, I'll be the first step in changing is realizing I am the problem and I need Jesus to transform me. Eve does the same thing. She says, well, God, <laughs> Adam might throw it on me, but I'm just going to throw it right on down to the serpent. You allowed that serpent in here. That serpent messed me up and that's your fault. 
The serpent doesn't say anything because God doesn't give it an opportunity. God just directly begins and he curses the serpent and then he gives, one could say curses to men and women, but really they were blessings in disguise that as we use them, they would draw us closer to him. But I don't have time to get into those. That's a study you can do on your own. They're very powerful how those curses were actually blessings in disguise that are critical for us to, in our weaknesses, be drawn closer to Jesus. But I want to go to verse 15, because here's the heart of it. God puts a promise right in the origin of lying. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here's the promise. In that point where you struggle, in that area where you are either deceiving yourself or trying to deceive those around you, where you think that you've got everyone hoodwinked, you probably don't, but you may think you do. You might. I don't know. But in that area, Jesus says, if you will let me, I'll put enmity between you and that sin, and I will set you free. And God will do that if we'll let him. We're going to move into the last. And this commandment, thou shalt not covet, is behind the breaking of it some of the biggest messes we've had in our world. Go with me to Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to take too much time here. We're going to touch on a couple of stories and then we're going to spend the bulk of our time in a story in 1 Samuel. But if you go to Genesis chapter 3, you're familiar with the story there. The serpent shows up in the Garden of Eden. God has created perfection. Everything is just how it should be. It's come forth from the hand of the Creator, perfect and holy. And God has put the first created human beings, our great, great, etc., grandparents, And here they are in this perfection. Everything they could desire, God has given them. And He's just said one thing, don't eat of the tree. And when Satan shows up and he begins to discuss with Eve, it's interesting to me what Satan does. Satan taps right into something that is the core of so many of our lives. He taps into this one thing. Genesis chapter 3, are you there, church? Verse 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. We've talked about how that's the first lie many times previously. I want you to notice verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be what? Opened and you will be like who? God knowing good and evil. Satan taps into the desire that every one of us have. We always want the greener grass on the other side of the fence. Are you with me? We covet what we see. Many of us, it's so innate inside of us. When I was growing up and I would see a very nice sports car driving by, I wanted the sports car. In fact, the officer, the police chief in the little town that I grew up in outside of Wichita, Kansas, so I grew up in Kichai, just north, the officer there had a Corvette with a special racing chip and he was going to sell it. And I told my dad, we need to buy that because I'm about to get my driver's license. And my dad said, uh, no. 
And then I found out one of the other teenagers in the area had been able to buy the car, and I was so jealous that he got the car. I coveted what he had. Unfortunately, he was in a terrible accident, thankfully didn't lose his life, and I realized what I was coveting would have been to my damage. But you would get the point. We covet what we should have. And so here he is in the very beginning. The mess we're in today is because Eve saw something that God said, it's not time, you should not have, you cannot be. And she said, well, if I do this, I can get it, it will be better. And ushered in the woe that we have today. You see, covetousness taps into that something better I may not have is going to be better for me. And he forgets that God, the ruler of the universe, the overarching of everything, only gives us what is best for us. If God knew it would be best for me, He would have given me all the money that Jeff Bezos has. But God knows that that would destroy me, so in His mercy, He makes sure that I don't have that money. Someone should say amen. If you go forward to chapter 4 of Genesis, we find that the mistake happens again. Adam and Eve have been removed from the Garden of Eden because sin is now separating them from God. And anytime we allow sin into our lives, sin becomes the separator. Thankfully, there was the promise of a Redeemer that would restore the separation in Jesus Christ. But now they're out of the Garden and they've had their first two children, Cain and who is it, church? Abel. And as Cain and Abel are coming forth, they grow up into young men and they have families of their own and they begin to do what God had set up. The priest of the home would come and offer a sacrifice before the gate to the Garden of Eden. And you remember the story. Abel comes and gives his offering and Cain brings his offering and God respects Abel's offering because he obeys what Jesus says And Cain brings his offering, which was the works of his hands. That's a sermon for another time. But church, if I bring my works, God doesn't respect that. Jesus wants my heart. What do you say? The point is that God respects Abel's offering because Abel brought his heart and he obeyed what God said. And Cain becomes jealous. He becomes what, church? Jealous. He begins to wish that he had what his brother was given. And so he slays. The first murder, I would submit, was several different commandments, but one of them was based around coveting what God had not given. You go forward a few more chapters in Genesis. Let's look at another story. We're just touching on the highlights because I'm hoping you're seeing a point being brought out here. Genesis chapter 13. We've jumped forward in time now. The antediluvian world has been destroyed by the flood. And God has now raised up a new leader of His people. His name is Abram. Abram leaves his country in chapter 12 and goes out as a wanderer, just following wherever God leads. And as you come into Genesis chapter 13, his nephew Lot and he have so many possessions, they need to separate into two different places. And so Abram, the older, the senior, the one who should have had the deference, but is so humble, he and Lot go up on a mountain and they overlook the countryside in front of them. We're in Genesis chapter 13 and we're starting in verse 8. Are you there, church? Notice what it said. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. 
Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the what, church? And if you go to the right, then I will go to the? Side note, how important it is to be deferential to the people around us. Abram defers to Lot. But Lot does not do this. Verse 10, Lot makes a critical mistake that cost him his entire family. Verse 10, Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed where? What should Lot have done? Lot should have deferred, but he coveted what Sodom had. He desired to go a direction that would ultimately be the destroying of his family. We know the rest of the story. Lot pitches his tent towards Sodom, and as he does, he starts moving closer and closer, and eventually it's more convenient to live inside the city, so Lot moves into the city. He's coveting what the world has instead of staying faithful and protecting his family from what the world can do to destroy the family church. I want to challenge you. I want to appeal to you as parents. Protect your children from the influences of the world because they are calculated to pull you away from Jesus Christ. Someone should say amen. Don't covet what the world has. Be grateful that God has put boundaries in place to protect His people and protect His children from the influences that will pull them away from Jesus Christ. What happens? As they move closer and closer, what Lot and his family, the influences he leaves there, slowly move upon his family and imperceptible to him, he loses his entire family because of that key decision May God protect us from the same. But our story that we want to spend time in is 1 Samuel chapter 8. There's stories that we could look at throughout the Bible. This covetous thing comes up multiple times. Book of Exodus, you find the children of Israel doing it several different times. They're wondering, you find it, and judges, you find it coming up multiple times. But the story I want to spend some time on in the remainder of the few minutes we have together is 1 Samuel chapter 8. When you're there, if you'd let the preacher know by saying amen. Samuel is old. For a number of years now, quite a few years, Samuel has been the judge, the prophet, and a priest in Israel. For decades, he has carefully guided the children of Israel to seek after the Lord with all their hearts. But as he's getting older, it's now too much for him to carry on his own. And so Samuel selects his two sons. He shouldn't have done that. Because his sons didn't have a sterling integrity like he did. And he puts them as judges over two different areas. And unfortunately, his sons don't follow in the footsteps of their father. They 
start taking bribes. They're able to be manipulated. They look politic when they make decisions as judges. And the Israelites, rightfully so, become very upset about what's happening. And so they come to Samuel and they say, look, Samuel, this is not working. Your sons are doing this and it's a mess and it's not faithful. What you've done was good, but what your sons have done is a mistake. And so we have a solution, Samuel, that we want you to do. We want you to put a king over us. You may say, Pastor, what does that have to do with coveting? Well, the children of Israel for the last number of years, decades, had been looking at the nations around them and they had been wishing that their country was like the other countries. They'd seen the Philistines with their strong leaders. They had seen the other nations with their kings. And they had seen these kings leading their men into battle. They had seen them brandishing it. And they had begun to think that if they had a single person at the head, if they could have this, they begin to covet what God had not given them. If it could just be like them, then we would be successful. Now think about it. If you were in their shoes, think back over the last number of decades and centuries. For centuries, they have been waffling back and forth between being in subjection to the four powers around them and then being free as God would raise up a judge. And they were tired of going back and forth between being under subjection to judgment and being free. And so they're finally thinking, look, if we can just get a consistent ruler that faithfully is doing what is right, then we'll finally be able to be a powerful nation that all the world looks at with respect and honor. Here's the problem. To do that, they would have to remove the king of the universe from that spot. See, the problem with coveting is it saying what God has given me isn't enough. I need more. I need something else. And the other problem with coveting is coveting sets us up to think that the solution is what someone else has instead of the solution being whatever Jesus says is best for me. If you go with me just a couple of books back to the book of Judges, but our story that we want to spend time in is 1 Samuel chapter 8. There's stories that we could look at Throughout the Bible, this covetous thing comes up multiple times. Book of Exodus, you find the children of Israel doing it several different times. They're wondering, you find it, and judges, you find it coming up multiple times. But the story I want to spend some time on in the remainder of the few minutes we have together is 1 Samuel chapter 8. When you're there, if you'd let the preacher know by saying amen. Samuel is old. For a number of years now, quite a few years, Samuel has been the judge, the prophet, and a priest in Israel. For decades, he has carefully guided the children of Israel to seek after the Lord with all their hearts. But as he's getting older, it's now too much for him to carry on his own. And so Samuel selects his two sons. He shouldn't have done that because his sons didn't have a sterling integrity like he did. 
And he puts them as judges over two different areas. And unfortunately, his sons don't follow in the footsteps of their father. They start taking bribes. They're able to be manipulated. They look politic when they make decisions as judges. And the Israelites, rightfully so, become very upset about what's happening. And so they come to Samuel and they say, look, Samuel, this is not working. Your sons are doing this and it's a mess and it's not faithful. What you've done was good, but what your sons have done is a mistake. And so we have a solution, Samuel, that we want you to do. We want you to put a king over us. You may say, Pastor, what does that have to do with coveting? Well, the children of Israel for the last number of years, decades, had been looking at the nations around them and they had been wishing that their country was like the other countries. They'd seen the Philistines with their strong leaders. They had seen the other nations with their kings. And they had seen these kings leading their men into battle. They had seen them brandishing it. And they had begun to think that if they had a single person at the head, if they could have this, they begin to covet what God had not given them. If it could just be like them, then we would be successful. Now think about it. If you were in their shoes, think back over the last number of decades and centuries. For centuries, they have been waffling back and forth between being in subjection to the four powers around them and then being free as God would raise up a judge. And they were tired of going back and forth between being under subjection to judgment and being free. And so they're finally thinking, look, if we can just get a consistent ruler that faithfully is doing what is right, then we'll finally be able to be a powerful nation that all the world looks at with respect and honor. Here's the problem. To do that, they would have to remove the king of the universe from that spot. See, the problem with coveting is it's saying what God has given me isn't enough. I need more. I need something else. And the other problem with coveting is coveting sets us up to think that the solution is what someone else has instead of the solution being whatever Jesus says is best for me. If you go with me just a couple of books back to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 10, we're to start in verse 6. We don't have time to read the whole passage. You can read that on your own later. Judges chapter 10. The children of Israel had been worshiping other idols. They had been drifting away from God again. They had been brought into subjection. And in Judges chapter 10, verses 6 through 16, the story is recounted of how they've been brought into oppression again. Verse 6, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asterisks and the gods of Syria, the gods of the Sidonians, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, etc., etc., etc. So God becomes angry with them and He allows them to be dropped into the hands of the Philistines. Now someone reads that and they say, well, God just got angry. That seems petty. No, 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 no. Here's what happens. When we put ourselves under the control of other deities besides God, God is unable to protect us anymore. Are you following me, church? 
And so it wasn't like God was like, yeah, good riddance to you guys. Good luck. Let's see what happens. It was that they had chosen someone else to be their protector, and that person happened to be Satan, who hates us and does not love us. Are you following me? So they're put back in under oppression. And it's grinding oppression. In verse 10, if in the same passage, Judges chapter 10 and verse 10, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baal. What's happened? Every time they fell away, when they turned to God, God would raise up a judge and set them free. Someone should say amen. But they started coming to the perspective by watching the countries around them and beginning to become jealous of what they thought was the prosperity of the countries around them, they begin to come to the conclusion, it's not that we're never going to stop going into idolatry, so what we need is a king, and a king will solve our problems. I want you to miss this. When we are looking to other things besides Jesus to solve our problems, we will never be successful. And so when we come back here to 1 Samuel chapter 8, they come through to the other side of this, and they're now here saying, we need a king. Samuel is deeply hurt. He goes to God and he says, God, I don't understand. I've done the best I can. I have been a man of integrity in all that I've done. And God says, Samuel, you're taking this personal. Don't take it personally. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting who? Me. They're rejecting God. There are times when we are sharing the love of Jesus Christ with someone and they say, look, it's just not the time. And it can feel personal. But church, we do the work. The results are left with who? With God. And so, Samuel comes back and he says, I need to warn you what's going to happen. If you go down this road and you do what you are coveting, which is not what God is wanting, but God will allow you to go down this road. God will sometimes allow what we should not have. If you go down this road, you are going to have bondage and suffering and pain. And church, I can tell you this right now, if you follow down the road of coveting, you will end up in bondage and pain. Bondage of jealousy. Bondage of bitterness and anger. Bondage of feeling like you haven't been given what you deserve. Church, we serve a God who will give us what we need to go forward in His strength and nothing more. Trust in Him. So point number two is if we are coveting, it will lead us into bondage and slavery. That's what happened with the children of Israel. They demanded a king. And so God gave them the desires of their hearts. But it was really... Sometimes when God finally relents and says, okay, if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. But I'm telling you, don't take it. But we take it anyway. It led to them having a king, and those kings brought great bondage to the children of Israel. David was the one good king. But you look at even Solomon, who was this great king. There were many of the children of Israel who were in bondage as forced labor under Solomon's rulership. We know that because when Solomon died and his son came to power, there was a delegation that came to his son Rehoboam and said, look, we will serve you, but you've got to be nicer to us than your father was. When we covet, it can lead to bondage and debt. You know, I've wanted a Tesla for a long time. Y'all notice the title. It's not about the Tesla. Y'all ever wonder what my dream car is? It's a Model S. 
which I guess is the plaid edition now. It's got real get up and go. But if I was to get that car, I would be in bondage of debt until it's paid off. And God has given me a very practical car that gets me everywhere I need. And he has kept running far longer than I was hoping it would, but I love that car now. And the Lord convicted me, here you are coveting what you shouldn't have when there is so much more that I could do with the funds there. What is it that sometimes you're coveting? You know, the world says if you have a bigger house, you'll be happier. I can tell you a house size doesn't make a difference in happiness. The world says if you have a higher paying job, or if you have a different position in your job, or if you get X, Y, and Z, or if you do this. And so we see people who are doing that and we covet what they have. We wish for what they have. And even if we don't have the means, or even if we know it's going to damage our family, we step out to do this or that. We take the higher position with the higher title because that's what we want. Now, there's nothing wrong with going up in the company if that's what God's calling you to do. Make sure you're clear on that. But if it's out of a desire for covet and it's going to damage our family, but we do it anyway, we will be in bondage in our families being damaged and hurt because we are doing something because of coveting instead of God saying, this is where I'm calling you to go. If God calls you to a position that's going to carry more stress with it, then church, He will take care of your family. Someone should say amen. But if I do it because I'm coveting a title or a position, then there's going to only be damage and pain to the family as a result. So how do we have freedom? What's the solution to coveting? Go with me to Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. As we come here to the end of our sermon, I want you to see this. Let's come to the final pieces. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11. Philippians chapter 4 has a lot to do with how to think like Jesus. Chapter 2 is let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4 Verse 8 and 9, I call the television verses of the Bible. They tell us what we should and should not read to have minds that are clear for Jesus. Well, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, Paul touches on how to have the mind that doesn't covet. Are you there? Notice what it says. Let's start in verse 10 and we'll come into verse 11. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for, read it with me aloud, I have learned, reading together, in whatever state I am, to be content. That's the solution to coveting. Wherever you are, whatever state you are in, to be what? Content. If your car has a few more character marks on it, be what? If your house isn't as large as one of someone else and you wish you had the bigger house, be what? If you're not making as much money as you wish you could or you think you need, what does the Bible say? Be what? Content. That's a great call. Don't worry. Go with me to Matthew chapter 6 as we close. If you're someone that 
struggles with desiring what you shouldn't have. Watching YouTube videos about very nice and expensive RVs. Wait, did that come out out loud? (laughs) Or if you're someone that stresses, how are we going to make ends meet next month? Oh, I wish that I had a more secure job, blah, blah, blah. You understand what I'm saying? This is Christ speaking to you. Maybe you're someone that's here in pain. And you're jealous of the people around you that don't have the pain you have. Maybe you wish you had different parents. Maybe you wish you'd had a different upbringing. There is a number of different things that could lead us to covet what someone else has. Paul says, be content. Christ says, don't worry. Read verse 25. Let's follow along. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I say to you, what? Do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to your stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little what church? Faith. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the who? Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father, read this verse with me. Let's start back again on the four. Read it aloud with me. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Keep reading aloud with me, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. Freedom comes from being content with what God has given you. Story told of a lady whose entire family had been slaughtered by the KGB and the USSR. She got married and her husband, I believe, was a pastor. And one day into their house walked a gentleman The husband was talking, the lady was upstairs, she didn't know yet. As the husband was talking, he figured out this was one of the officers that had slaughtered her entire family. As he talked to the man and they were talking about Jesus and his ability to forgive, the gentleman said, my wife upstairs, you were part of the team that killed her entire family. The officer was shocked. Things had changed, and now he's at a different place. He feels guilty. 
He says, I want you to notice, I'm not going to tell my wife what to do, but I'm going to tell her who you are. You're going to see that she's going to come down. She's going to fix you the best meal that she can. And she's going to serve you because that's what Jesus would do. And so, he goes up and he tells his wife. Of course, she's heartbroken. But just like Christ left everything and came down and worked in a broken world, she came down. She took the best food they had in the house and she made the best meal that she could and she served the man. And the man was weeping. Why are you doing this for me? Because God forgave me everything. I can forgive you. Sometimes our brokenness and lack of contentment is because we are struggling to forgive. We're bitter about any number of things that have happened in our past. We're jealous and wish things had been different. We want to make things right. We want to right the scale. I'm here to tell you, you know the promise. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will what? Repay. If anyone had the right to right the scale and to be discontented with what is happening on this world, it's the Son of God who was murdered by the people He came to save. And yet Jesus forgives me even though my sins put Him on the cross. And that same forgiveness and that same contentment that Jesus had, He will give to you if you ask Him. You can't have it on your own, but in Jesus you can. And He'll restore what was broken. Do you want that contentment? Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, all of us have brokenness in our past. All of us have experiences that we have gone through that hurt. All of us have people that have damaged us. Some of us at a level that only you can understand. But today, we ask that you will teach us how to forgive and how to be content with what you want us to do going forward. Father, all of us have been jealous of others at some point, either of what they possess or of their background or who they are. Forgive us for that jealousy. And by Your grace, set us free. Oh, Father, today we pray that You will do a mighty work in our hearts. That we might discover the freedom and the joy that we can only have in Jesus. You saw our hands. You know our hearts. We thank You for hearing and answering this call in Jesus' name. Amen.
You have been listening to Phil Mills, pastor of Lansing Seventh-day Adventist Church. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit his church this coming Sabbath or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. You will find the church at 5400 West St. Joe Highway in Lansing, Michigan, and their church service begins at 1050 a.m. Access their website at lansingadventist.org. This program has been a Strong Tower Radio production.